Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. This has certainly been uh, grabbing the attention here and south of the border, that being the... uh, the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh for Supreme Court nominee. And uh, it looks like that has passed another hurdle to talk more about all of this. Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure to help, Scott. Uh, here's what Mitch McConnell had to say about whole, how this whole process has gone down to date. The absurdity. The absurdity. The indignity. This is our approach to confirming a Supreme Court justice. All right, is that the pot calling the kettle black, Michael? No. Uh, again, it depends on what side of the aisle you're on, but no, he's absolutely right. When you consider the, the importance of this position, a position on the Supreme Court of the United States, an important nine-person body which decides important legal matters in the U.S., so basically of the three components, the executive, the legislative, and judicial, this is one of the three branches of government, and the people who are on it are intelligent, well-read, well-studied, well-versed in the law, and sure, they come at it from different perspectives, from the right and the left, as we know, but are, you would hope in most cases, well-suited for the position, and there's no question that Brett Kavanaugh, based on his legal record, is extremely well-suited to be, I think, one of the finest Supreme Court justices of all, and that's partisanship aside, just because the man has had over 300 different rulings, including some rulings which are used still as textbook examples of how to produce you know, a, a judgment from, a, from an important judge on a particular matter. So basically it's used as an archetype or a skeleton. It's astonishing what we are, what we are watching here. And that's why Senator Mitch McConnell is so frustrated and why a lot of people are so frustrated, mostly on the right. But, I mean, there are some on the left who recognize that this has been a circus, that we are going through a hurdle where it looks like Brett Kavanaugh, if he does make it to the Supreme Court, and the final vote will be hopefully tomorrow at some point, could be by a razor's edge because of these allegations of sexual harassment from Ms. Ford, Ms. Ramirez, and a third person, and also because we are living in a very politically charged environment, where, th- where in the old days, for example, Republicans and Democrats would usually side with whatever that particular president want, he or she want, or well, he wanted to put in place to the Supreme Court. So in other words, even if he didn't necessarily like the choice of a Supreme Court justice, he usually went along with it. Like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, who's ultra-liberal, there were very few Republicans who voted against her at the time, I think two or three at best. But it was a different time, a different place, and a different United States overall. What we're seeing with Brett Kavanaugh is one of the most impressive and superior legal minds in the United States might get in by, of all things, the vice president issuing a tie-breaking vote. Isn't that preposterous? Isn't that offensive? And isn't that awful? I really think it is. But how did we get here? What do you do when someone makes such an accusation? Well, look, I'm not going to go, obviously, through the whole rigmarole of why we're here, because I'm sure you've discussed it quite a bit, and everybody else has, too. But the reason why we got here is basically there was going to be a movement against Brett Kavanaugh anyway, no matter what happened. He was nominated by U.S. President Donald Trump who has been a lightning rod of controversy since he took office and even before he took office. 
We knew that obviously anybody who is a Republican judge, generally speaking, holds very strong views, not just on fiscal conservatism, but also social conservatism. So obviously the political left in the United States will erupt anytime someone like a Kavanaugh comes through because they're worried about the future of abortion, that being Roe v. Wade, the famous case, or other matters that they think could affect their wheelhouse or their, their purview of what is important to have on a day-to-day basis in their country. Is that is that realistic, what they are thinking? I mean, you know, people bring up the Roe versus Wade. I mean, could we end up seeing something like that overturned? No, and actually there's no history or no proof that it would. I know that... So that's hysterics? I think so, in yeah. a lot of cases. And let's put it this way. Let's say it was. Let's say Roe v. Wade, which has been around on the book since, I believe, 1973. Let's say it was overturned, just to change gears for a second. That would then mean that each state in the United States could then make a decision whether they want to have a, be either pro-choice or pro-life, whether they want abortion or whether they want to ban abortion. What is wrong with that? The United States was born on the measure of states' rights. That has been an important part of the U.S. It's enshrined in their constitution in many different ways. And what would be the harm of that? The fact that you live in a state that feels differently or opposes things differently? Roe v. Wade is not accepted throughout the United States, every single one of the 50 states, the same way that Roe v. Wade is looked upon differently by people in our country or throughout Europe or throughout Africa, Asia. I guess most are saying we've been there, done that. Why go backwards? Because, unfortunately, sometimes in life you do go backwards. And that's just kind of the way it is. And I know that that sounds easier said than done. But it is. But it's often the case that many ideas and principles are re-examined at a later debate. Look, you could sort of use, I don't know, gay marriage, for example, in Canada as an example where most people are not going to look backwards. And the Conservative Party of Canada, which by and large, most of its members, either publicly or privately, oppose the introduction of SSM, same-sex marriage, we have come to, you know, many conservatives have come to accept it, and no matter what their personal point of view, they accept it as being part of the law, and we're just going to sort of move forward from there. That's what Prime Minister Jean Chrétien and the Liberals had hoped at the time, and they were right about that, as it turned out. And I, I think most of us sort of privately knew they were going to be, too. However, on an issue like abortion, which obviously affects many people and with in very strong terms, maybe not as much in this country, but certainly in the United States, there have been lots of people who said, what if it ever does get overturned? Mr. Kavanaugh, for the record, has not made any indication or implication that he will ever touch it. In fact, there are two rulings where it would sort of seem to allude to the fact, no matter what his private feelings are on it, you know, there is a rule of law that has to be respected. That's what he believes in. He's not saying it to, to score brownie points. That is truly what he believes in, and that's what his judicial record has shown throughout the whole course of events. So the fact that Democrats are coming out and screaming that Kavanaugh is going to overturn this decision or be the lightning rod to begin it, it's completely and utterly false. So getting back to my getting back to my original question, uh, Michael, so what do you do when you have a scenario like this and all of a sudden an accuser like this steps forward? What do you do? Well, I mean, we've seen what's happened. Obviously, we had the two testimonies at the Senate Committee, and then they went to the FBI, who did a uh, roughly week-long report, interviewed somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or more people related to the case in some way, shape, or form, and concluded that that Mr. Kavanaugh's position seems to be accurate based on their findings. 
The Democrats obviously come out and say, well, you know, this wasn't broad enough. You know, we knew this was going to happen. We, yeah, that's great. Yet somehow or other, you are also the ones pushing for the FBI to look into it. To start saying it's a grand conspiracy and that the Trump White House handcuffed the FBI and that they didn't look thoroughly enough. We need more time. We need more people. Enough is enough. I mean, this is really starting to get very silly, to me anyway. We have to start moving forward, or we being the United States has to, I talk about them so much, I'm now a part of it. The United States has to start moving forward on important issues, and having a ninth person on the U.S. Supreme Court is one of them. Mr. Kavanaugh has been cleared by the FBI. You can say it was awful. You can say they were, the FBI was handcuffed. You can say it wasn't thorough enough. He has been cleared. That's what the Democrats wanted. They wanted the FBI to get back in and approach it and, and look at this issue properly. They did look at it. They produced a result that they're not happy with, that being the Democrats. So now they're complaining. So I'm sorry. I, we have to start moving forward on important issues like this. And now that Mr. Kavanaugh has cleared the procedural vote, we now can have an, a final and official vote in, this, in the United States Senate, hopefully as early as tomorrow. And whatever happens, whether he wins by one vote, two votes, three votes or more, at least if that happens, then it'll be finalized that way. But if he loses by one vote or more, well, then you have turmoil and you have a potential election issue. Hmm. So how do we ignore the testimony of Blasey Ford? We're past that point, Scott. With all due respect, I mean, Blasey Ford. So we don't believe we don't believe her. The gavel's down, and he gets pushed through. That. I mean, it's going to be very, very tight. There are five. No, but again, I'm going back to the testimony of her. Here's some per- a person that stood up. It got everybody's attention, and, yeah. and 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 you know, obviously, there's two issues here. There's of the course. issue of his character, and then there's the issue of how he handled himself and whether he's qualified to do this position or not. And I'm sure that he is. But yeah. at the end of the day, how do you, you know? I mean, with the, with the country being as divided as it was after this testimony, how do you just move on from this? Well, how do you just be- how do you just ignore her testimony? It, it, they're not ignoring it. They did hear it, and I didn't hear a single Republican say that Ms. Ford was a liar. All they said was that they felt that the evidence produced by Mr. Kavanaugh, in their view, looked to be stronger than Ms. Ford's. No one is disregarding her testimony. She spoke honestly and forthrightly. She obviously, but but nobody's disregarding her testimony. But they're saying, unfortunately, there isn't enough evidence to believe you. So he goes through. And again, I'm not I'm not arguing whether he should be there or he shouldn't be there. Frankly, it doesn't matter to me. I'm I'm not. I don't have a political. I don't have political skin in this game. But again, we've got a woman's testimony here that has literally divided a country. And whether and and I'm aware that it's it's dirty politics. I'm aware that the the Dems don't want him in there, no matter what the scenario is. And this is just another reason and way to get him out. But again, how do we? ignore the testimony of that woman it's not that they're going to ignore it's that that somehow or other and, and senator lindsey graham during the senate committee hearings directly said that you know that it's going to be difficult for the nation to heal i'm just paraphrasing a little bit but that he hopes his friends across the aisle will do so it is going to take a lot of time and certainly if mr kavanaugh gets through or doesn't get through the senate which we'll find out shortly it may become an issue an election issue one way or the other Um, But how do they get through? I know people are saying that, well, this is a sign that the Me Too movement is going to collapse in the United States or no women's ever going to be believed again because of this. 
you know, it's nice to grandstand, and, and it's fun to grandstand. I get that. And no one is disregarding Miss Ford's testimony. I certainly am not, and I don't think anyone is. However, when I saw it, Scott, I had to admit, from par- partisanship aside, I know it's hard for some of your listeners to believe, but put it aside, I thought that Mr. Kavanaugh's testimony was stronger and that the emotion he showed while standing there, which he actually wrote about in a Wall Street Journal op-ed, which was published today, basically saying that, you know, that he felt that he, he did go overboard to some degree. It was because if he really truly believes he's innocent, and I think he does, the emotions overcame him. He got furious. He was angry. It had been 10 days of blasting at him, his family, his wife, his children. He just got fed up. And that doesn't mean that he's going to do this with court cases that have nothing to do with his personal involvement. He was under attack, and he had finally just reached his boiling point. How could no one understand that? The same way that Ms. Ford, in her view, believes that she was poss- you know, the possible victim of a rape. She, has, you know, she views the issue in a particular fashion. There are a lot of holes in her testimony, as I've discussed with other people, in terms of the time, the date, the people. Some of the key witnesses that she claimed have either said that they weren't there or that they don't remember the series of events quite like she did or at all. But nevertheless, obviously her testimony means something in the grand scheme of things, and that's why this vote is going to be so close. But this isn't the end of discussions of the Me Too movement. This doesn't mean that women are going to be ignored because of what happened. It just means in this particular instance, and I think we have to isolate it, it just means that when it came to a Supreme Court justice nominee and his accuser from 35 years ago, in unfortunately in a very politically charged environment, the Republicans decided mostly, with maybe one or two exceptions, to go along party lines and basically state that President Trump's choice for the Supreme Court made more sense and would be a benefit to the country than the possibility of something that may have happened 35 years ago that no one will ever really know the true answer. I guess my point with playing the clip of Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, complaining about is this is what it's come to, well... Why not just move on? I mean, it takes two to fight here. Why not, when, when the smoke started, I'm sure there's many qualified judges that could take this position. Why even start this fight? Why even go there? Why be so divisive? Why not be like the old days and go, well, you know what, we'll try to find someone we can both work on. Why not because, go there? Because I don't think we're at that stage anymore in the United States, to be perfectly honest. I think ever since the days of the Clarence Thomas trial, And then the problems that happened with people who were nominated for the Supreme Court but never made it, like Robert Bork, um, Judge Ginsburg, Harriet Myers, etc. We have seen too many issues where politics has played an intervening role in partisan politics rather than the merits of of the actual Supreme Court of Justice nominee. And that's the real problem there. I don't think if President Trump started from the beginning and picked, say, his second choice, for example, or even his third choice, if he wanted to leapfrog someone, you would see maybe, obviously not the same type of circus that we've seen here, because I don't think accusations would necessarily come out of the woodwork, but who knows what could potentially happen. We all have skeletons in our closet. Some of them are very small, and some of them aren't bolted down very easily in that closet. You know, they're not going to come out anytime soon because they're not that big. You know, everyone has little minor things that they've done in their lifetime we all know that 
But unfortunately here, once you start the process, Scott, I just think it has to be finalized. And look at the president who's also in charge. Do you honestly think, although some people are suggesting, oh, Donald Trump would be very happy if Brett Kavanaugh loses because they can, he can use it as an election issue and so can the Republicans for the midterm elections. Do you think that he would have gone through this time and effort for a legacy pick, which is what a Supreme Court justice is, to actually watch the person fall? Absolutely not. This is a guy, whether you love him or hate him, who will fight to the better end. This That's is, true. That's for sure. Michael Tobis went with his Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You have a great Thanksgiving. Take care. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. The number of provinces that are rejecting the carbon tax plan are up to three. New Brunswick's potential premier says they'd be removing the tax as well. This is going to create some, uh, obviously, a situation for the prime minister who has said that uh, if provinces don't come up with a carbon tax plan, he will give them one. To talk more about all of this, Steve Applin is with us, uh, publisher of Emission Track, which monitors CO2 carbon dioxide emissions from energy use and is with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great to be here, Scott. Is the movement, to is the anti-carbon tax movement growing, Steve? Sounds like it is. Uh, you mentioned three. There is actually four of them because uh, don't forget Manitoba. Manitoba pulled out earlier this week and it looks like... Uh, well, and Alberta's actually pulled out as well until the until, until the, the pipeline uh, is, government can get yeah. that pipeline back on track. So they might as well say they pulled out because that'll take forever. That that's correct. So so effectively, Alberta's out of it, and that was that was a bit of a, uh, a godsend for Rachel Notley because she, she's got com- competition breathing down her neck, and uh, they are anti-carbon tax as well. So to salvage any hope of winning the next election in Alberta, she's got to ditch it, and if she loses, uh, you get Jason Kenney, and he's against it as well. Uh, before we move on with this, I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on them approving an LNG, a liquid natural gas pipeline, and not the Trans Mountain. Well, if I'm one of the, you know, uh, we're just talking about the premiums that are against the carbon tax. If I'm one of the lawyers for Saskatchewan, and uh, I guess uh, Ontario is lending a hand in that area as well, uh, I'm looking at this kind of thing and saying, well, this is how leaky this, this plan really is. LNG is, uh, you know, the the Prime Minister rather disingenuously mentioned that it's going to be displacing coal, uh, in, not necessarily. Uh, when we export it over to South Korea, if South Korea goes through with its nuclear phase-out, very, very ill-advised uh, nuclear phase-out, LNG is going to be displacing zero-carbon nuclear. That's that's uh, 500 to 600 grams per kilowatt hour of electricity if it's natural gas, which is what LNG is. Uh, so, and and same thing with Japan. If Japan doesn't bring back its nuclear fleet, then then uh, Canadian LNG going to Japan is going to be displacing nuclear, zero-carbon nuclear, not uh, coal, as as the prime minister said. In some places, it may be coal, but in most places, it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be something zero carbon, like nuclear. So I think that the uh, this is something that that you know makes the the federal government look good. They're not against every single fossil project that comes along, uh, but I mean, there's a lot of uh, stuff that could happen between the time between now and the time, and uh, that they get some uh, large scale terminal operating in Kitimat and and exporting major LNG shipments over to Asia. Do you think the Trans Mountain will go? Will go through? They're even talking about, there's an article about gifting it to the to First Nations. Yeah, um, well, there's, uh, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of uh, uh, scenarios that could, that could uh, come to fruition. I think that the, that the pipeline eventually will get built, 
it's just uh, what does it what problem does it solve? We still are still our our, our biggest uh, customer for this kind of stuff is still the United States, and this is a pretty roundabout way to get it to the United States. Better thing would have been Keystone. And uh, if Keystone gets moving, then what happens to the economics of Trans Mountain and how many uh, of our of our non-U.S. Uh, buyers of crude are going to be lining up to to purchase our, uh, our our crude getting shipped over the oceans? These are all these are all short-term solutions to what looks like a sort of dimming long-term process. Mm. All right, let's move back to the carbon tax. Uh, Obviously, there's a train wreck coming between the provinces and the prime minister. How is he going to handle this? Um, Because obviously, when he set up this plan, it looked like most were on board. That certainly has changed. How does he he deal this uh, moving forward? Yeah, this is a this is a tough thing for the prime minister. You know, I'm I'm glad that I'm not him. He's he's uh you know he uh, you're right. He he came into power with with a, a across the board a bunch of premiers uh, in in favor of this kind of thing. Now most of them are not against are are, are dead against it. And uh, well, he's keeps on doubling down and saying that he could do it, and he and he could. There's there are people who suggest that that the feds still could put in across the board. They could change their their approach to it and say, okay, well, we're not going to tie a provincial scheme to, you know, to what we're doing. We could just have a across the board carbon tax on everybody. And we just issue checks and, and that makes them look good when, when it comes up to an election. It's just that um, the gamble is how if a, a federal carbon tax, even if you're getting a check in the mail, you as a taxpayer, uh, does that, you know, a lot of people get checks in the mail from the federal government and from the Ontario provincial government and just voted the Ontario provincial government out. So it's not a guarantee that if you take that approach, uh, you're going to get reelected. Uh, and and there's there's something to be said for all these the conservative premiers uh, pulling out of this thing on the basis of their electorates not supporting it. So it's it's a it's a tough political call for the prime minister. He's been doubling down and he's like he's not been changing his rhetoric on it he says we're going ahead with it uh, although you know that we're getting sort of uh, uh, not mixed signals but kind of weak signals from the environment minister so it's uh it w- i guess we're going to see how they politically play it but uh, it's going to be tough for him to pull out of it so I don't see him doing that either. Uh, not many Canadians are disputing climate change. Uh, I think we are all aware of the science. But wh- so, why are the provinces? Why are people so skeptical of this? Is it that they're skeptical of governments, especially in Ontario, that are using you know money that's supposed to be earmarked for green for other purposes? Why are why are the provinces so skeptical about this? I think that they're sensing. It's it's that the, their electorates. This is this is this is my hypothesis. You know, if you take if you take the Ford government, I think that he's he's said uh, um, the population of Ontario doesn't like this idea. Doesn't like the idea of cap and trade. Doesn't like the idea of a carbon tax because they don't like taxes, or because they think that they're skeptical that a carbon tax is going to work, or or a combination of those two things. I think it may be the second thing. I think a lot of people's eyes glaze over when you tell them, "Oh, we need a carbon tax, and we're going to reduce CO2." I think that people who look at the evidence of this know that that's not the case, and I think that uh, you know whether whether whatever happens with this legal challenge, it's good to get this into the national conversation because we're not discussing this in a in a you know in a productive manner. This is the carbon tax has become an article of faith among those on the center and left of the political spectrum for whatever reason I don't really know, 
uh, some some master's uh, political science student should write his his or her thesis on this. But that's that's the case. That this is a this is now turned into a matter of political ideology. If you if you support a carbon tax, you're on the center left, and if you if you oppose it, you're on the center right. I, I think that the better conversation, Scott, would be for to, for us to look at measures that actually reduce CO2. The carbon tax doesn't do that, and and as long as this stays in the public conversation, in in my opinion, the better chance people start to recognize this. It could be that 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 the the premium, the anti-tax premiers have have tapped into this, and they think that there's a lot of skepticism on whether this works. All right, Steve Applin has been with us, publisher of Emission Track, which monitors CO2 carbon dioxide emissions from energy use. Steve, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Always my pleasure, Scott. Thanks. All right, let's bring in Christo Avali, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. He is with us now. Christo, thanks for the time. Uh, thanks for having me. What, what what do you make of all of this? Uh, are we is this just like an append, an impending train wreck? I mean, how are the provinces and the PM going to come to a, a solution here? I mean, it's going to be tricky because you know it, uh, you know some of the provinces are in line with the prime minister, or sometimes they have you know you know specific disagreements. But but as we've seen, you know, Premier Ford and Premier Mo at, at, at you know and 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 Pallister to a certain they, they've all kind of taken a, a fairly, you know, anti-carbon tax, anti-cap-and-trade, whatever you, whatever specific model, they're against it. And the prime minister has kind of said, well, provinces that don't implement a system that holds up to our minimum standards will impose it. And it, I don't know how you square that with anything else other than a court battle. And I think that's probably what we're heading towards. Uh, as Steve Applin said, uh, these seem more fiscal, more financial remedies than they do actually reducing CO2. I mean, I, I think most would agree that there's something going on with the climate that needs to be addressed. I think we're past that stage about accepting this. But why do people still find that? Why are people still so skeptical about this? Not so I mean, much I'm about not, sure. not so much about climate change, but about a carbon tax. Well, you know, I think from from I think certain aspects of the political spectrum it's actually quite interesting because this is the market solution you know the the more traditional left solution is 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 kind of driving through planning and 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 subsidies and what have you and the carbon tax is basically what it's saying is that look if a private company dumped garbage on the street we would not accept that and we would make them pay for the removal because they're adding to the costs of the public and they're affecting public health and the idea is that when you pump carbon into the environment in some way, you are affecting, you know, public health. You're affecting the climate. You're 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 affecting these sorts of things. And there's externalities to that. And a carbon tax is one way of charging the companies that are doing the carbon emissions some kind of remedy. Now, whether people trust it or not, as you know, there's a general anti-tax sentiment. There's you know a sense that perhaps this money isn't being used directly to deal with the externalities of the of the the carbon and it's being used for other things and that's more of a political question but i think the idea of a carbon tax isn't necessarily a bad one you know and one of the things that that's rather interesting here is that justin trudeau has actually been something of uh, something somewhat flexible here he said provinces need to have a carbon tax but ford could say look if the issue is that we're not using this money to actually deal with the thing it's supposed to i'm going to scrap the liberal plan and I'm going to implement a carbon tax that actually 
is targeted towards green energy and, 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 a, and a safer environment. And I'm not going to use it as a slush fund for, for other things. And I think that could be quite popular. And it would, one, protect himself from a legal challenge from the federal government. And further to that, I think that it, it really gets to this idea that, you know, it's, it's the market solution. It's allowing a, a kind of a market of, of to, to, to be applied here. Because I think the problem is, is that a lot of the free marketeers in our political system don't want to admit that when we allow companies excess carbon into our environment, that is in effect a corporate subsidy to those companies, right? And I think that's something that we have to square uh, you know, ideologically in this country. I think, Christo, a lot of people are just really, really skeptical. Uh, I think they buy into climate change. I think uh, Canadians, Ontarians, by and whole, are environmentally sensitive to this sort of stuff. But again, as I've said before, I think the Ontario government, uh, the wind government, tapped into this and milked it for all it, it, it was worth. And when you have the Auditor General coming out and say they overspent by $37 billion on green energy projects, I don't think this has anything to do with the environment. I think it's people looking at the government and saying, this is just another way to prey on the sensitivity of, of, of green energy uh, on people's minds and use it as a revenue stream. If you showed any concrete example that this was actually reducing CO2, I don't think Ontarians and Canadians would have a problem with it. I just don't think they think the money's being used for the right reasons. I think just the way the Liberals have tapped into um, uh, the female vote, I think the liberal, liberals in general have tapped into green energy because they know we're all sensitive to it and will write the blank check to them. I mean, my, my, my perspective is, is that the liberals' plan was actually flawed for a lot of reasons, but it was flawed because we gave too much money to private capital, that we gave guaranteed prices to, to green energy companies rather than through hydro, through a public you know, crown corporation, run the energy for our own public interest. And I think in some ways, the more free market solution, which Ford generally supports, is one of the reasons we spent oh, too much on energy. But I think one of the difficulties is that, is that again, Mr. Ford, if, if he wants to implement a system that actually uses a carbon tax or uses some sort of, 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 of fee that charges polluters for the pollution they cause, because again, the, the, the analogy is that if a private company dumped their garbage on Union Street, right in front of, right in front of, uh, you know, or, or mm -hmm. right in front of the Air Canada Centre, we would we would charge them for the removal of that of that garbage. And I think that you know, carbon pollution has a, an effect on our environment, and there needs to be charges for it. Even if it doesn't reduce it, there's going to be effects on our environment and on our society. And the people who do the polluting should pay for it. Now, again, if Mr. Ford and you know the other kind of you know anti-carbon tax premiers right now really believe that we could you know use that money effectively then they should do so but i think the problem is is that they're seizing on this skepticism which i think you're right that it, that it exists that the money isn't helping and they're going in the complete opposite direction and they're not and they're saying no carbon tax no kind of provision to deal with this and i think that's misguided i think that if you really believe that it's flawed offer a concrete alternative because i think what mr ford and mr mo are doing is in effect they're trying to give big subsidies to the uh, biggest carbon polluters in our, in our society because they're basically telling them, you can pollute the environment with impunity and we will absorb as a society, the taxpayers, the citizens, the children of the future will absorb your externalities. And I don't think that's uh, necessarily a fair option either. 
Uh, I think you have you, you talked about putting it back into public hands. I mean, you know, I, I think that um, you have to police this, whether it's a public system or a private system. One of the reasons it got into public hands was because government year after year after year after year didn't put money back into the public system. And then all of a sudden there was a whole pile of capital needed to update it. Nobody had that. So it went to the private industry for help. So what do we do when there's politicians that are running this public system but refuse to spend the money on it because they other have other political interests? And then the, the system just just slowly uh, decays anyway. I mean, we could say the same thing about our roads and bridges. We could say, what if Kathleen Wynne had taken that $37 billion that the Auditor General said she wasted and put it to health care or, 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 or LRT or subways or trains or transportation infrastructure? I mean, I think people are just skeptical and, and tired of being taxed up the yin-yang. I mean, our taxes are historically low in Ontario, though. That's the reality. If you look at the wealthy especially, what the wealthy paid 40, 50 years ago pales in comparison to what they pay, or is much higher than what they pay now. So I think the right has been quite effective. Christo, how do you tell, and you know what, I'm not in this tax bracket or not, and maybe one day I can dream to be so, (laughs) but anybody who pays more than half of what they make in tax that's just not right. I don't care if you're a bazillionaire or whatever. I mean, there's other ways, I, I guess, to generate revenue, and there's other ways for these people to get around these sorts of things. But you know what? Uh, when we die, we all die in the richest tax bracket if we own a home, and half of that goes. So again, once you get to the point where you're paying, uh, for every dollar you make, you're only making 48 or 46 cents. You know, if I'm a big rich guy, I'm going to try to put my money elsewhere too. Because paying half of what you make is just, or more than half of what you make, to me, just doesn't seem right. Well, I mean, my, my perspective is that uh, the wealthy in this country don't pay nearly enough. That, that, that's my perspective. Um, they benefit greatly from the Canadian state that protects their wealth from, um, you know, from, from the you know, rabbles that could take it. They, they benefit from the citizenship that this country provides, that it gives the opportunities it gives to their children. Um, and they benefit from the kind of general freedom that allows them to operate in this country. And I think while providing job, while providing jobs and a living for the rest of us. Well, no, no. See, the, the 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 employers don't provide jobs. Consumers provide jobs, and consumers provide jobs when wages are good, unions are strong. Well, consumers buy the product. Consumers buy the product that keeps the companies in business. I mean, you could go no, around in circles no, on so this. My, I guess my perspective is that the wealthy in this country, maybe maybe you could argue that they're overtaxed. I mean, that's a political debate. But I think what I'm saying is that taxes are historically low for for Ontario's wealthy. Let's go. You know what, Christo? I don't know much about this, so educate me on this. How? Let's go back. Take me that back to a certain year and how much they were at that time. Well, you know, like the, the specifics are, are, are difficult to say because you know this is. You know, I, I would have you know talked about you know t- taking notes on this, but if you go back to the the 1940s and 1950s, you know there were certain differences. You know there was there were there were different taxes that didn't exist, but the reality is that in some places the upper t- upper uh, tax rates were approached 70, 80 percent. In the United States, for instance, kind of the bastion of the free market, taxes at, at some point approached above 90% of the top brackets. Effectively, we're approaching a tax that said after a certain amount, you'll stop paying, you'll stop effectively earning wealth. And the United States at the time was the wealthiest society in the world, had strong unions, uh, uh, you know, a general approach to equality. You know, it wasn't a, a socialist society by any means, but, you know, up until the 1970s in Canada and the United States, um, when workers' wages rose, when, when companies did well, workers' wages often rose by a similar amount. And yet what we've seen 
since the 1970s in both Canada and the United right, States. Right, is that gap, Is yeah. that, you know, in part due to this tax regime, is that as workers, as companies have done well, and, you know, if companies produce good, good, good services and they do it efficiently, they should do well, but workers' wages haven't kept up. I, you know what? I agree with that, Chris, to 100%, and we're running short of time, so i got to cut you off. Yeah, I agree with that 100%, but you know what? If you told me, Christo, that you were going to tax me at over 50, 60, 70, 80, 90%, I'd quit my job. Christo, thanks so much for the to- uh, time. Much appreciated. Christo Avali, Social Sciences and Humanities uh, Professor at University of Toronto. Thank you, Christo. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Rob Snook. He is with No LRT Hamilton and on the line with us now. Rob, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. So uh, tell us about No LRT Hamilton. Tell us about this organization and that sort of thing and and how it all got started. Uh, Pretty much got started because we didn't see the benefit that would come from it, but we do see considerable loss as a result of it and not just from construction but loss of access for a lot of businesses along the route because of all the restrictions in traffic. So uh, is this during construction you're concerned about? No, beyond that. The, the, the finished design will still result in a lot of traffic restrictions. All the side streets will be forced to turn right. You won't be able to cross the system because it's raised in a median. And uh, so the only way to get across north-south will be through major streets. Isn't that the way to get across now? Not you still have to go through it at, at an intersection. There's several, many other intersections. Oh, some I, of them other than like, main intersections is what you're saying, yeah. But, yeah, along the way that won't be existing anymore. And uh, when you get to Wellington, from there west to Mary Street, there's no cars allowed whatsoever, according to this plan. So any westbound traffic on King is ha- going to have to find an alternate route. And that's where we really run into problems with Hamilton. We only have two main crosstown streets, and that's Main and King. The rest are fragments. They only go part of the way, and they're not really designed to take that kind of traffic overflow. Uh, so your concerns, your concerns are this will create more congestion? Oh, yeah. It'll definitely create a lot more congestion. And um, and the other, the other concern was that the fact that it would restrict traffic between two stops. Well, that's uh, about three or four blocks distance. Right. And all the flow gets diverted at that point. All traffic flow in King has to go north or or south. So you're either turning at Sanford or you're turning southbound at Wellington. You cannot continue. Are these problems, in your mind, solvable? Uh, Is this worth scrapping a a, a $1 billion transit project for? Well, the the problem is unsolvable. There's no room to build another major artery through the city. Again, you know, I, I, I've, tra- I've been fortunate enough to travel through Europe where, you know, the cities are a thousand years old and the streets are even smaller and there's room for everyone. So, again... Sure, but that's very, very different circumstances. The streets are also narrow, windy. There's not a lot of alternatives. There's a lot of streets you could not run a bus down because they're not wide enough. Yeah, but the point is that I'm making is the LRT isn't restricting the movement of any other people along the line. Like, the LRT does not really restrict people from going into the area. If anything, it's quite the opposite in any LRT I've been on. Well, I don't know. I don't see how it's going to make it better. Have you been to a city where there is an LRT? Well, I've Toronto plenty of times. I've been to Vancouver. Have you been on their LRTs? Yeah. What about Calgary? They're not real impressive. Uh, Calgary, I haven't been on, no. Yeah. 
Um, like it depends a lot on the city. Hamilton's very specific situation here with a choke point between the escarpment. And you know the what? Lake. To be totally honest, uh, Rob, I don't think there's any more challenges in Hamilton than there are in any other cities that has had one put in. Like I don't see how Hamilton, you know, other than Hamilton has an escarpment and, and other cities may not. Th- there's no more congestion, road, or whatever problems than there is in in any other city that has one of these. It's the lack of uh, room between the lake and the escarpment. There's no room for another major traffic artery. So traffic flow is pretty heavy on Maine and King all day long. And it's going to be massively disrupted. So that's do you think any? Do you think any of these reasons are worth stopping a $1 billion well, transit project? one reason, buddy. Well, I'm, 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 you know, it's your, it's your time. Give us like, more. I don't see where there's a, really, there's very little benefit in building this thing in the first place. For the price. Well, we've already seen the, the develop, we've already, not good. we've already seen the development that's taken off around the line. We've had people on from Kitchener Waterloo saying the same thing, that the development of the along the line and, 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 and what it has, has. Well, has, that's part of the plan, right? They make land available, they expropriate land, make it available to create development along the line. It's really not a result of the line itself. It's just part of the plan. Is that a bad thing? I don't understand what the... I, like, honestly, I'm having, a hard, I'm having a hard time why understanding... Why do we need to tear up the road and put in a different form of transportation to do exactly what we already have with the bus? It's the same route, it's about the same capacity, and we, there's it's no not the greater same demand for more capacity. Right Let now. me ask you this. The fact that we are in a 100-year-old city and all of the main lines underneath this not city need that's, to be replaced... Need to be replaced. That doesn't hold any value. Again, I I just, you know, maybe answer this question. Why does Hamilton always celebrate when it gets less? What is your alternative to this? We could still go with the BRT plan. Okay. Which is less money. A lot less capital costs. All right. So why does Hamilton... better benefit, cost-benefit Why does Hamilton seem to celebrate getting less? Why do we enjoy That's getting less? what it's about. And, and, and why, let me, let me ask one more question. I want to ask one more question. Dave writes, I guess we here in Hamilton are smarter than every other city like Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Montreal, Toronto, Waterloo, Mississauga, and London who is planning to build an, LR, an LRT. Yep, we sure are smarter than all of those cutting-edge cities put together. Why do you think so many cities are doing this if it's so unproductive? Like I said, it depends a lot on the city. It's not going to work. But again, way. Hamilton is not, not that much. Hamilton is not that much different. Hamilton is not in the future. Hamilton is not that much different than any other city. And to well, say Hamilton is different. not, and to say that Hamilton is not going to have the ridership and that it's not growing, it's just insane. We have 60% of our population is senior citizens. That's not going to provide growth. We have a lot. We have a high number in this city. What does that have to do with the LRT? And wouldn't well, senior wouldn't, wouldn't senior citizens benefit from an LRT? Well, they ride it till they die, but once they're gone, they're gone, and that's a big. Drop well, you in could population. say that. You could say that about everybody. I guess Hamilton's just going to roll up the streets because everyone's going to die soon. The majority of the population is sixty percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, old people. <laughs> I'm sorry, Rob. I don't think this makes any sense. Well. Is that is that is that the best we can do for not having an LRT? Well, where is the benefit? It's saying is slow. I just told you. I just told you what the benefit is. Kilometers an hour. It's not. It's not. I don't know. If you've been on 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 an LRT, they go faster than stink. That's why they're on a dedicated line. As far as the benefits, that's a very different situation. Excuse me. It's running down the middle of the street. It's still a dedicated line. 
It still has to deal with traffic. No, it doesn't. It has wigwags that go down. It's a dedicated line. You are confusing a streetcar with LRT. It, it, they still can't do it, uh, run it at a high speed. Yes, they run at a. They, the yes, they do run. Have you? I don't. You said you've been on an LRT. The one in Calgary that I've been on, it goes fast. The things come down. It goes wailing through the intersection. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's a different kind of system than what they're planning. That there's no mention of high speed and, and dedicated. Uh, By high speed, I don't mean a high-speed rail line that's doing 300K. I'm just saying it's faster than buses. And it is on a dedicated lane. It's on a dedicated track. I'm seeing. There's no dedicated. It's just in the middle of the road. So what? So the train stops when cars pull in front of it? If it's a red light, they have to go by the traffic signal. That's exactly. can't exceed city speed limit. Uh, Oh, Rob, honestly, you got to ride an LRT, pal. Because that's not do it here. It's a dedicated line. They've got tons of room to do it. It's already like I don't know what you're talking about, Rob. Look at the plan. It's not in the plan. It's a dedicated line. It's in the middle of the road. I'm well aware of that, but it's on a dedicated line in the middle of the road. Wigwags go down, and then it stops the traffic. The LRT wails through. Like you're making it sound like it's a streetcar. It's not a streetcar. It's on a dedicated line that runs down the center of the road. The traffic stops when the LRT goes by. That's not what the plan is. I don't know what the hell plan you're looking at, Rob. They dropped that whole aspect of dedicated line and wigwags. They dropped that. And they've been it. they can't exceed the city speed limit. So I'm up to date on this, not you. I, I don't understand what you think this lane is doing that I don't. I believe it's on a dedicated line. What are you talking about? If it, if it drops wigwags every time it goes racing by, how are you going to sync that with traffic lights that are set up for 50 kilometers an hour? You're going to have people in the middle of the intersection and suddenly wigwags are coming down. The best thing I can say to you, Rob, best, the, the best the thing I can say red. to you, Rob, is go to an LRT city and ride one. The only LRT in Toronto goes back and forth to the airport. What does that have to do with anything? So that's a go to Calgary. Go to Calgary, ride their LRT. It's quite extensive, and it's been around since the 1980s. It's on a dedicated line. That's what we're talking about here. You are confusing, and a lot of people are. You people, are, and a lot of people are confusing this with a streetcar. It's on a dedicated line. It's not a streetcar. That's not the information we have. It looks like a streetcar. It's a two-unit streetcar. No. Streetcars, when they stop, all the traffic stops behind them to let people off. This doesn't work this way. No, you'd get off in the center. That's this design. That's what I'm seeing in Kitchener. It doesn't... People getting on and off the LRT doesn't affect traffic. Streetcars do. If you get stuck behind a streetcar on Queen Street in Toronto, it takes you forever because it stops traffic. Yeah, because this you get is, off on the, tr- the live traffic lane Right. Side. That doesn't happen with LRT. It's on a dedicated lane. The people do not get off the LRT and stop traffic. That's just not the way it is. That's I the difference. Where you're that's get a ridership. That's anyway. a difference. Now you're changing your argument. No, but it's, just, it's part of the whole <laughs> argument. These are points that oh are all. Oh my God! Again, you know what? I think Rob that, that you're confusing LRT with 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 streetcars and streetcars are a waste of time the only reason they were kept in toronto way back when was for tourist reasons 
uh, and, and now the, the whole transportation uh, debate has, has revolved around them. I'm not sure they'll ever get rid of them for that purpose. But a streetcar is not an LRT. A street, an LRT does not stop traffic when it's letting passengers uh, on and off like a, a streetcar is. And, and, and I don't know what to tell you other than that, Rob. Hmm, it's very different from what we're being told. So you think that this is like a streetcar, and when it stops, all the traffic stops? Yeah, essentially, it's a streetcar. That's what we're. Mm. All right. Well, thanks. As far as we know. Again, Rob, I I think you're confusing a streetcar with an LRT. When a streetcar stops, all the traffic has to stop in order to let the uh, passengers off. That's not the case with an LRT. And I'm sure you can go on YouTube and hit Calgary LRT, and you can sit in the front seat and watch it as it goes through the center of the city, and maybe that'll give you a better idea uh, of how it's going to work. All right, Rob, I'm going to let you go. We're going to take some calls here. The phone lines are open, 905-645-3221. Start 9900 uh, on your cell. If you want to chat more about this, you know, I don't know. I just, uh, an LRT is way different. I have lived in Toronto. I have lived in Calgary. And I remember living in the beaches in Toronto off of Queen Street, and it was a pain in the ass getting behind a streetcar because they stopped every so often and the whole traffic had to stop. The whole idea with an LRT is that doesn't happen. It's on a dedicated line where it keeps running. So I think it's really, really important that we don't confuse uh, the Hamilton Street Railway of the past or streetcars with LRT. Streetcars and LRT are very different. I'm against streetcars. I'm for LRT. Now, Larry, go ahead. Hey, Scott. Um um, I'm for the LRT. Okay, go ahead. Why? Well, you know, what saddens me, Scott, the most is that Hamiltonians, and God love them, and I do, but they would f- fight and argue over the time of the day. I'm sorry, Larry. I didn't realize it was Larry Deany. Yeah, it is. It is. Go ahead. I mean, there's other Larrys in the city? <laughs> <I didn't>. <laughs> <laughs> Not on this show. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, I interrupted. Well, go ahead. Yeah, well, so here, here it is that we're, we, we've got provincial funding to build something new that not only helps the transportation corridor uh, from Eastgate to McMaster, but it renews infrastructure beneath the road and stimulates development along the route. And we've seen some major purchases already made, and I know personally of people who have paid, in some cases, hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars to buy some property, anticipating this renewal along King Street. And yet, we're arguing about it. Instead of (laughs) celebrating it, we're arguing about it. We have people running for office who are using it as a wedge issue to divide the center of the city from the suburbs, the the mountain from below the mountain. And that saddens me because, you know, I believe in this philosophy. Uh, and I argued this when I visited Flamborough, for example, when we were building the Red Hill Expressway, or Dundas, and they would say, I'll never use it. Yes, but when we do the, the water-down bypass, you'll use it, and the people in the East End of Hamilton will not. And so my philosophy is, when you're helping a part of the city, you're helping the whole city. And in fact, in fact, the political strategy has to be that today it's the LRT helping the core of the city and transportation along that route. 
Tomorrow it's the Waterdown Bypass. The next day it'll be something in Ancaster. You know, the renewal of Wilson Street. And that's how you build the community without having people feel envious or angry that this is happening in a part of the city that they don't live in. Larry, let's talk about let's talk about the LRT itself because it seems that Rob from No LRT Hamilton is confusing this with a streetcar. I know this I is on a dedicated head. lane, is it not? Yeah, yeah, I shook my head at that at that conversation. I mean, uh, it's almost a, it's as if people have decided to stake their territory, and then they're using whatever arguments they can muster to justify why they've taken that position. And if you really listen to that gentleman, and I'm assuming that he's sincere, he said three things. One, it's going to be disruptive. Well, of course it's going to be disruptive because anytime you build a major infrastructure uh, program, it's going to be disruptive. When we fixed Concession Street, it was disruptive to those businesses. King Street and Stony Creek, it was disruptive there, and so on. Anytime you do that for a short period of time, there's disruption. But there's longer-term benefit, though. Two, he said that some businesses will close. Well, you know what? Um, this, it's up to the city to, to make sure uh, that when you're constructing, you're going to try to salvage access to businesses as much as possible. Will it be the same? No. But it should. Uh, the businesses should be able to survive, especially along the King Street route, because you got King William on one side and you've got Maine on the other, that will still provide access through those side streets. Not as convenient, but still good. And eventually when it's done, it'll be, it'll be better. And the third issue that uh, the gentleman, of course, talked about is the mode of transportation. And he's confused about that. This is a modern uh, light rail system that will not only move passengers who are riding the train, but will accommodate other passengers beside as well. However, for sure, it'll be a different configuration. And when he talked about only two main streets, meaning King and Main, he's forgetting Burlington Street. Mm. That's a huge access point from the east end to the west end, uh, from, you know, um, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the 403 yep. uh, all the way to Jane Street. And that is going to be used as well as some of the other streets as well. So all of this will be figured out. But why we are arguing about it, and it's actually an election issue for some, is just beyond me. We should be celebrating resources coming to our city yeah. to make it better and newer. It's like I said, Larry, it seems we celebrate when we get less. But i got to let you go. Thank you so much for the call. Much all appreciated. Right. All right, take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.